Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Psalm 25. The point of the psalm, and it's a very important point, in fact it's a point that I think we're all going to relate to, the point is no matter how difficult it is, no matter how bad life seems to be getting, no matter how afflicted you feel, the fact is God is still on his throne And that he is still your only option. God knows that during your times of trouble, that you're going to turn to him more so than during your times of happiness and jolliness. I was talking to a friend just this week. And he was talking about, in fact, he stated, why would God do this to me? Why would God put me through this? My life is such a struggle right now. Why would God do this? Because I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that he's in charge of it. But why would he then do this to me? And so I reminded him that everywhere you look in the Bible, Old or New Testament, you find people who are clearly the people of God. I mean, King David is the man after God's own heart, the one that God himself chose to be the king of Israel. So we would have to say that he has a pretty solid and intimate relationship with God at this point. And yet, how many of the Psalms have we seen where he is crying out to God to be delivered from his pains, from his afflictions, from the difficulties of his life? This Psalm is one of those Psalms where David is contrasting And recognizing the fact that God is completely sovereign, completely in charge, and his life is really difficult, really hard, he's really afflicted. And so he turns to God yet again, recognizing that God, as he's going to say, is the God of his salvation. If he's going to be restored, if he's going to be protected from his enemies, if he's going to remain on his throne, if his family is going to remain intact then it's going to be God that's going to do it. So even in the midst of his affliction, David still ends up turning to God. We see that time and time again through the Bible, and that's what I was trying to stress to my friend on the phone the other day. I said, come on, how much did Paul go through? Can we agree that the Apostle Paul was hand-selected by God? God even said, I'm going to make him my mouthpiece to the Gentiles. And nevertheless, God said, and I'm going to show him the great things that he has to suffer. So if you can find like King David, man after God's own heart, you can find the Apostle Paul, hand selected by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet both of them had great difficulty in their life. How many people in this room right now have ever been stoned and left for dead outside the walls of Lystra? Anybody? The Apostle Paul was. 
he lists the fact that he was a day and a night in the deep, that he was in fastings often, in stonings. Three different times he was beaten with 39 lashes. So we can't say that his life was all happy and pleasure day by day. We would have to say that his life was very, very difficult. But is God sovereign despite those difficulties? Yeah, absolutely. It was God who was taking him through those things. And so Paul concluded that it was because of the grandeur, the wonderfulness of what had been revealed to him that in order to keep him from becoming too prideful, too arrogant, too egocentric, that God continued to put these troubles in his life to humble him. And in this psalm tonight, we're going to see David say, that God is the God of the humble again. And that God will afflict people in order to humble them, in order to keep the relationship between himself and his people on a proper footing. David's going to use that language too, that it is God who leads us on the path that we walk through this lifetime. And even as he is leading us, he takes us through these times of difficulty and trouble so that we have to lean on him. We have no other choice but to turn to him. And David, as he so frequently does, comes to the conclusion that God is well able. God can deliver him and will sustain him, but he's God regardless. So no matter what happens in your life, it's just so easy for all of us as egocentric human beings It's so easy for us to go through a time of trouble and start asking, where is God in all this? And I can answer that question. He's right in the middle of it. He's right there. He's the one who knew this was coming. He's the one that empowered the fact that it came. He's the one who was sustaining you through it. And he is the one who is ultimately going to build up your faith as a result of the things that he is taking you through. That theology is all in Psalm 25. Now, from a literary standpoint, Psalm 25 is interesting because it is an acrostic poem. David took all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. By the way, do you know where we get the word alphabet? It's because the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Bet. And therefore, that is known as the Aleph Bet. That word just moved its way into the English language, actually through the Greek language, as alphabet. And so David is taking the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and beginning each line with one of those. So that is the literary structure of this particular psalm. But we lose that when it is translated into English, because these lines don't start with the English alphabet. But you need to know that this is the structure that David is writing in. And fortunately, David signed this psalm. We know it comes right from David because it says a psalm of David right away. So we know that King David is the author of this psalm, and he starts out with, To thee, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. Okay, that's a very positive statement. That's a very good-sounding statement. But what he's really saying, as you're going to see as we continue in the psalm, is he's saying, I'm pouring out my soul to you. I'm bringing you my plea. I am begging you to hear me. 
Listen to me as I lift up my inner man, my soul to you, because, oh my God, in thee I trust. That, by the way, is not the word Adonai, which David occasionally uses. Here he is using the word Elohim. Are you familiar with Elohim? One of the most ancient names for God is El, like El Shaddai. Shaddai, the all-powerful, is a modifier to the name El. He is the God who is the all-powerful. And then you've heard me oftentimes tell you that in the Hebrew language, I am at the end of any word. The im sound at the end of the word is a pluralization. And so you've got goy, Gentile. The goyim are the Gentiles collectively. Same thing here. He's taken the name of El, but then he has pluralized it, Elohim. That name of God, by the way, is the name of God that you find in Genesis 1. When translators translate Genesis 1 and they say, let us make man in our image, the reason that they use those plural adverbs is because Elohim is a plural name. So Elohim is a revelatory name of God who at the very beginning of all creation names himself with a plural name and then throughout the rest of the Bible we find out that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. That he is in fact a plurality. That's the name that David uses here. First he calls him Yahweh and then says, you are my God Elohim and in you I trust. The reason that is significant is because David is about to say, and it's bad down here. I'm going through tough times. I'm going through difficulty. And yet, despite the fact that I'm going through this difficulty, I trust you. Whatever you're taking me through, I trust you. O Yahweh, O Elohim, in thee I trust Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. So he describes the kind of shame that he's trying to avoid. His enemies are again encircling him, encamping against him, are determined to be rid of him. And in the midst of that, he points out to God, as he's going to do several times, he's going to say to God, remember, remember what you're like. Remember the relationship you have with us. Remember these things, God. So he says... For your own sake, don't let me be ashamed because I trusted in you. If I trust in you, follow your law, rule according to your law, and then my enemies can overtake me, well, then all of your enemies are going to be able to mock you because you were the God who wasn't able to protect his own nation and his own king. And that would be an open shame to you, God. So don't let me be ashamed and do not let my enemies exult over me, lift themselves up and say, oh, we got him, despite the fact that he trusted in this God. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. I don't know what your other translations have there. The LSB has hope for thee. Because the word that is translated wait or wait for is the same word that lays at the root of hoping for, anticipating for. So what David is saying is, 
It looks bad for me right now. But I still trust you even in the midst of this, even as my enemies want to exult over me, even though they want to destroy the reputation of your name, even though they want to take down Israel. Nevertheless, those who wait for you, and that is not like whistling on a corner kind of waiting. It's not like, well, where is he? He's late. He's It's the kind of waiting when you go to a restaurant. The guy who serves you, the woman who serves you, is a waiter. They're in the job of serving. That's the kind of waiting that's being referred to here. That kind of serving God in the hope, in the confidence that God is sufficient to deliver you from your hardships. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. So David has just said, If my enemies exalt over me, I'm going to be ashamed. It's going to be a shame to you. But I know this. I know that none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. So how did David correct his thinking? How did he readjust his mind? He looked at his circumstances and he said, it's bad. But then he adjusted himself by proper theology. Recognizing who God is, what God is like. And that he knows for a fact that no one who serves God, waits for God, hopes in God, no one who has confidence in God is ever going to be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause, they will be ashamed. How does David know this? Because he knows the law of God. He knows the character of God. He knows the history of God. He knows what God is like. Therefore, even in the midst of his trouble, he can say confidently, those who wait for you won't be ashamed, but the ones who are dealing treacherously without a good cause will be ashamed. So verse 4, make me know thy ways, O Yahweh, teach me in thy paths. A path is a well-trodden down road. In other words, it's a road that lots of people have walked on and therefore it's packed down and becomes a pathway, a roadway. And David, again thinking theologically, says, make me know thy ways, O Lord. So in David's thinking, who is responsible for David knowing anything about God? God. God is. And he says to God, make me know your ways. Teach me your behaviors. Teach me your mindset. Teach me the lifestyle that is appropriate for a person of God. Let me know your ways. Make me know your ways. Because how often have you heard me say, and I don't expect you to answer the question with an actual number, but how many times have you heard me say through the years, Christianity is a revealed religion? And in fact, the Bible, Old and New Testament, is a revelatory book. Anybody here read the Bible at any point in your life where you just couldn't understand it? Sure. Just couldn't figure it out. Makes no sense to you. And here you are sitting here now, and I'm sure there's large swaths of the Bible that you're comfortable with now. You can read it, and it actually speaks to your soul. Okay, what happened? 
Well, what happened was you were converted from the inside and God revealed himself to you. And part of that process of revelation of himself is revealing his word to you. So now you have the ability to comprehend his word in a way that you didn't have before because God revealed that to you. That's what David is asking for here. Reveal your ways to me. Make me understand your ways. Teach me in those well-trodden paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. You can, as a human being, which pretty much everybody in the room is, correct? (laughs) Uh, As a human being, you can go sit by a babbling brook. You can go hug trees all you want. You can pick daisies and sing about rainbows for the rest of your life. And that's not going to help you know anything about God. God has to teach you. God has to reveal it to you. God has to show it to you. He has to open his word to you. And he has to open your heart so that you can understand his word. And the reason that you could not understand it before and you do understand it now is because God has done something for you. Miraculously, graciously, he has opened your mind and heart to not only understand the things of God, but to care about the things of God, to desire the things of God, to want God to teach you more. Okay, so for those of you who said you didn't used to be able to understand the Bible, now you can understand some of the Bible. Perhaps you have a great comprehension of the Bible. Do you ever find yourself thinking, well, that's it. I've wrapped up the Bible. I know everything I need to know about the Bible now. You ever feel that? Nope. No, because we constantly want more. That is part of the characteristic of God revealing himself to you and revealing his word to you is that it becomes life for you. It becomes sheep food to sheep for you. It becomes what you care about, what you love, what you want more of, what you desire more of. That's what David is expressing here. Lead me in your truth and teach me because you are the God of my salvation. I'm not going to understand salvation any other way. doesn't matter how many trees I hug or how many babbling brooks I sing to. I'm only going to understand the things of God if God himself teaches me these things and reveals these things to me. For you are the God of my salvation. For thee I wait. I hope all the day. So David's circumstance so far in this psalm is it's tough. It's difficult. Life is going hard for me. My enemies are coming down on me. They want to exalt over me. They want to destroy my kingship. They want to destroy Israel. But my response theologically is to wait for you, to hope in you, because you are the God of my deliverance. You are the God of my salvation. Now, starting at verse 6, I'm sure that everybody in this room is going to agree thoroughly with David's next plea. Because he's going to say in verse 6, remember, O Yahweh. And in verse 7, do not remember. So there's certain things that he wants God to remember. And there's things he doesn't want God to remember. First, the remembering category. Remember, O Yahweh, thy compassion and thy loving kindness 
because they have been from of old. That's the way the NASB renders it. The Hebrew word is the word there for everlasting. So he says, remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, because those are everlasting. Those are characteristics and attributes of God that have been as long as God has been and will be for as long as God is going to be. So remember that, God. Remember your compassion. Remember your empathy toward your people, that you remember that we are just dust. And remember your loving kindness. Jeremiah 31.3, God speaking says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with my loving kindness, I've drawn you. So David's and Jeremiah's theology is very consistent. The loving kindness of God is the reason that God reveals himself to people. That's the reason he teaches people. That's the reason that he gives people a new heart, a new character from within. It's because of his compassion, recognizing our failing and our inability to do anything good that would satisfy his righteousness and holiness and also his loving kindness so that he is patient and gracious with us, long-suffering so that he can teach us and draw us because those are characteristics that are everlasting. Verse 7, do not remember my sins. Everybody agreeing with that one? Yeah, God, I'm going to tell you what to remember and what not to remember. (laughs) Remember your loving kindness. Remember how compassionate you are. Remember how gracious you are. Remember how long-suffering you are. Don't remember my sins. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Those are transgressions against the law of God, all the ways that he has failed God's law. According to your loving kindness, remember me. So he's begging God, praying to God, when you think of me, when you remember me, when you consider me, look at me through your loving kindness, through your grace, through your compassion toward me. Don't look at me through the lens of my own sinful rebellion. Don't look at me and see all my transgressions against you. But because you can't look at me and see me as righteous, because I have already sinned and transgressed against you for my whole life, Well, then look at me through your compassion, through your loving kindness, because that is the only way that I'm going to find acceptance before you, because you're righteous and holy, and I am depraved and sinful. So remember, O Lord, thy compassion and thy loving kindness, for they are everlasting. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me, For thy goodness sake, O Lord, because of your goodness, because of the characteristic of your goodness and grace, because of your holiness and righteousness, and for sake of all of those, for sake of your compassionate character, for sake of you and your reputation, be good to me. Be kind to me, but not because of me. I know I'm sinful. I know I've rebelled against you. So you can't look at me and find anything good within me. Therefore, look to me through your compassion. Wear those big God-type compassion glasses. 
Put on your big, everlasting, loving kindness glasses and then have a look at me. But don't look at my sin and do it for the sake of your own goodness. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. This is all part of the same argument. He's saying, I, as a sinner, asked you to lead me, teach me in your paths. And for you to instruct me or any other sinner in the way, in the path, in the righteousness that you have set before us. In order for us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you at all, you have to teach us. You have to instruct us. And why would you do that? I mean, after all, look at Tom. Has anybody taken a good look at Tom lately? I mean, why? Why would God, the almighty, holy, righteous, eternal God, spend time teaching Tom? Grace, grace, grace. Grace, grace, grace. It's the only reason that he would do that. And Myrna, you're not off the hook. <laughs> Why would God do that? For the very reason that David lists here. Because God is good and upright. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. That's why God graciously teaches anybody, reveals himself to anybody, opens his word to anybody, changes the stony heart of anybody. He does it because of his own character and reputation, because he is good and he is upright, and that's why he instructs sinners in the proper way of life. And he leads the humble in justice. That Hebrew word that's translated humble in the NASB can also be translated afflicted, and later on in this same psalm, it's going to be translated as afflicted. So what David is saying is more than just humility. It's people who have come to a state of humility because of the things that they've suffered. Because they've gone through hardship. Because they've gone through difficulty. One of the quickest ways to eliminate anybody's pride is to make them really sick and lay them down in a bed. Put them through some kind of just horrible hardship, some difficulty in this life. There aren't a lot of people laying in beds in the hospital bragging about their own abilities. Instead, what they're looking for is compassion. What they're looking for is help. What they're looking for is medicine. But what they're not doing is saying, yeah, look at me go. Boy, I'm killing this thing, ain't I? Oh, improper word right there. It's... No, instead, God leads the humble into justice. He leads the afflicted, the ones who have learned humility by the things that they have suffered. Those are the people that he leads into justice, into uprightness. And he teaches the afflicted, the humble, he teaches them his way. Really important concept. If a man is full of his own ego, full of his own pride, completely self-confident, self-assured, doesn't need anybody or anybody's help, is that man looking for God? No. Nope. Is he looking for what Jesus can do for him? No, of course not. 
So what is the first thing God has to do in the process of revealing himself to you? He has to humble you. He has to break you of your own pride. He has to break you of your own sense of self-sufficiency. Being fully dependent on God is the best place you can be. But if you're walking around bragging about dig me, you're not fully dependent on God. You're too busy bragging about what a self-made man you are. You're too busy thinking that you're in control of your own life. And you don't care about the things of God. But if God loves you, then out of his genuine love and compassion for you, he will break you. And he will make you completely dependent on him. And that's a really good place to be. And this all, by the way, is just an extended answer to my friend on the phone who said, why would God put me through this? And the answer is obvious. God is putting you through this because he is humbling you in order to corner you so that you have nowhere else to look but to him. And your first day in eternity, you're going to be really happy he did that. Even though it may be difficult right now. Even though life right now may be difficult. I went to my doctor the other day for my monthly checkup. Now, he's two years older than I am, which makes him ancient. And he, and he actually walked through the door. And the first thing he said to me as he walked into the room that I was sitting in, first thing he said is, are you to the point yet where everything hurts? Yeah, yeah, Doc, that's exactly where I am. I wake up every day and everything hurts as if life wasn't tough enough. Now my body's even rebelling against me. So it would be real easy to like shake my fist. Why would you do this to me, God? Why me? And of course, what's the correct answer to the question, why me? Why not you? Why not you? You're the same as everybody else. You're going to go through, especially if God loves you, you're going to go through the difficulties of this life, and you're going to learn from it, and you're going to grow from it, and you're going to depend on him more, and your faith is going to be built up. It's exactly what David is talking about here. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble, the afflicted, into justice, and he teaches the afflicted his own way. All the paths... All those beaten down walkways, all the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David is going to say in a couple of verses, look at verse 14, second half of it, he will make them know his covenant. Here he is saying that God is compassionate, he has loving kindness. He teaches truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. When you put those two phrases together, what you end up with is people who care about the covenants of God. And where did they learn about the covenants of God? From God himself. So again, it is always theocentric. It always starts with God. It always ends with God. Just like Jesus saying, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end, I'm everything in between. God has to teach you, has to reveal himself, has to show you his covenants, has to lead you in his paths. And then you're going to keep the covenants with God. To those who keep his covenant and his testimony, to those people, 
All the ways, all the paths, all the instruction of God are loving kindness and truth. And now again in verse 11, just like a moment ago, he said, for your own goodness sake, do these things for me. Now he says, for your own name's sake, for your own reputation, O Lord, pardon my iniquity because it is great. Do you feel that? I mean, everybody in this room ought to have that sense of, okay, God is righteous and holy, infinitely just, sitting on his throne, doing whatever seems right to him, and then there's you, the worm. There's you, the depraved person. There's you, the rebel. There's you, the enemy of all righteousness. And yet David says here, for your own name's sake, for your own reputation, for your own praise, for your own honor and glory, I'm asking you, pardon my iniquity, because it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord, says verse 12? The man who fears the Lord is the one that God instructs, because the next sentence says, he will instruct him, that's God will instruct that man, in the way that he should appoint So it goes back to God again. The only people who fear God. That that does not mean slavish fear. That does not mean that you're hiding under the bed because, oh no, God might get you. What it means is reverencing God, having a proper respect and fear of God. Who is the man who fears the Lord? God will instruct him in the way that he should appoint His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. We, sitting here in the 21st century, don't feel the weight of that phrase quite so much. They will inherit the land. But you have to remember that an important part of the Abrahamic covenant was that the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, belonged to Israel in perpetuity. And so part of the blessing of God was not only that he would give you food and that he would give you rain, that he would protect you from the wild animals and protect you from your enemies, but also that you would inherit continually the land that God gave. And so frequently when Israel would rebel against God, he would cast them out of the land to demonstrate that that land was theirs only by promise of God, not because they had properly earned it by keeping the law or fighting hard enough for it. And so part of the promise from God in David's mind, especially because he is the king of Israel as he's writing this, he says that the soul of the man who's been instructed by God is going to be prosperous. You're going to prosper in your thinking, in your spirituality, in your understanding of God. In your soul, you're going to prosper, and your descendants are going to inherit the land. So you're going to be a recipient of the unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham that Israel was going to have this land in perpetuity. When they rebelled against God, sent them out of the land. But when they follow after God and walk after God in the ways of God and keep covenant with God, they're also going to keep the land. The NASB says the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. The Hebrew word, I think, ought to be translated as the counsel of the Lord because that's essentially what he's getting at. The counsel of the Lord is not 
something that God spreads uh, among all human beings. He isn't just walking around telling people everything. The fact that he's revealing himself to particular people means that it is sort of a secretive thing. And so I can see why the NASB translators went with that translation of it. But what it means is the intimate counsel of God. When God, by his own Holy Spirit, teaches you, instructs you, through his word, through the reading of his word, through the hearing of his word, when he is instructing you, then you are somebody who has a proper reverence for him as a result of that teaching. The counsel, the intimate counsel, the secret of Yahweh is for those who do fear, who do reverence him, and he will make them know his covenant. So the reason, again, I know I'm beating this to death, and yet I'm going to do it again, because I have a microphone, and you can't stop me. (laughs) God keeps saying over and over again. David keeps writing over and over again. If you have any kind of understanding of God, if you have any understanding of his covenants and his promises to you, if you have any understanding of his loving kindness, and therefore you have a proper reverence for God, That is all a result of God being good to you. That is all the loving kindness and goodness and grace of God who is not doing this for everybody. It's real easy. Walk out the front door, turn right or left, you're going to bump into somebody who knows nothing about God. Why do you? Why do you know stuff about God? Well, it can't be because of you because I know most of you. It can't be because of you, because the Bible says you're a depraved sinner, that you have a hard heart, that you have a stiff neck, that you don't care about the things of God. So how is it that you've come to love the things of God and to fear God? David's answer repeatedly in this psalm is, that's a result of the loving kindness and grace of God who has been remarkably good to you. Verse 15. Despite the trouble he's going through, and in the rest of this psalm, he's going to describe his anguish, his difficulties. And yet, despite his difficulties, verse 15 says, my eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So even when his enemies plant traps for him, he says, the very fact that I am delivered from their traps is a result of God being good to me, God being gracious to me, and plucking my feet up out of their snares, out of their traps. My eyes are continually toward the Lord because he's my only deliverance, even as my enemies are out to get me. Verse 16, he continues the prayer. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Anybody ever felt that? Ever been in a lonely and afflicted place? And yet he says, even in the midst of my loneliness and in the midst of my affliction, my eyes will continually be toward Yahweh. And Yahweh, as I'm looking to you, turn to me. Be gracious to me. Not for my sake, but for your sake. For sake of your loving kindness for sake of your own reputation, because I'm lonely and I'm afflicted and the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. 
It's real easy to read those words and not feel it with the depth that David wrote it with. Because this is a couple thousand years ago and because we don't, we don't know David like our next door neighbor or something, it's easy to read that and say, well, yeah, that's just David creating a contrast. God is holy and righteous and I'm in trouble. A lot of the Psalms feel that way, so okay, this is just educational. But I'm asking you tonight to pay attention to what David is doing here. He's pouring out his heart. He started out by saying, I'm lifting up my soul to you, God. I got nowhere else to go. I'm begging you. I'm pleading. Look at my situation. I am lonely. I am afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. I believe David wrote that because he was really feeling the aching, the pain, the difficulty of human life at that moment. And he had nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn but to God. And so he declares time and time again, the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness, the grace of God, because he's got nowhere else to hope. And he knows he's a sinner. And he knows that unless God forgives him, he's going to be condemned by God. So he's genuinely begging, okay, so why am I stressing this? Because I began this evening by saying that I had had a conversation with a friend who said, why would God take me through this? And my answer to him was, that's what God does to people he loves. The writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and afflicts every son that he receives. Scourges is the good King James language. He will correct his people. He won't lose his people, but he will teach his people. And sometimes those lessons are difficult. What you have to remember when you're going through your time of hardship, when you're going through your time of distress when you're going through the moment when you want to look up at the sky and say, where are you, God? Remember this psalm. Remember what David has said here, that even in the midst of his hardship and his pain and his affliction and his fear of his enemies, even in the midst of that, he thinks theologically and answers the question, who is God? What is God like? And then goes and pleads to God on the basis of the character and the nature of God. Mm. Notice what he doesn't do. He does not go and say, God, deliver me because I'm worth it. Deliver me because I've been faithful to you. Deliver me because I'm the king of Israel and people look up to me and I have a reputation to ensure. His cry for deliverance is always based in the character of God. And so remember that the next time you're struggling. No matter how bad the struggle, no matter how difficult the struggle in this life, when you're going through it, remember that God did not disappear. He is not doing this because he suddenly dislikes you. He's putting you through this for your own good, for his own glory, and the end result is going to be the building up of your faith, the building up of your confidence, and the building up of your utter dependence on him. So think theologically even in the midst of your difficulties. 
Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many. So on top of everything else, David's got his own personal struggles, his own loneliness, his own affliction, the troubles in his heart. The depression, the pain that he's feeling is enlarged within him. And he's constantly thinking about his own sinfulness before a righteous, holy God. And the only place he has to go is to the righteous, holy God. And he recognizes himself as a sinner begging that holy God to help him. And so he can't plead anything else than by your grace, by your kindness, by your love. Forgive me for my sins. And then on top of all that. The enemies are trying to take down Israel and destroy his kingship. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a violent hatred. They don't just hate me. (laughs) That would be enough. It would be enough. They hate me. Now, they hate me with violence. They want to do violence to me. They want to kill me. They want to destroy me. They want to cut me up in little pieces. So I have trouble without, I have trouble within, I have heartache and depression and affliction and loneliness and I'm the king of Israel and I'm trying to figure out what to do about the enemies who are trying to take us down. You can see why in verse 20 he would say, guard my soul and protect me. He's got nowhere else to go. Not just protect me physically. Protect me from my enemies who want to do violence to me, but guard my soul. Because it would be so easy for the flesh to rise up in circumstances like that and start cursing God or questioning God or asking where God is. And so what is the solution that David turns to to keep his own soul intact? He goes back to God. Protect my soul. Protect me from myself. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed because I take refuge in you. So that's the same theme he began this psalm with. Don't let me be ashamed. And don't let it be ashamed. Don't let my enemies be able to conquer me and then mock you. Don't let that shame fall to me. Don't let that shame fall to Israel. But instead, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. He is talking about God's integrity, God's reputation, God's uprightness. Let that be what preserves me. I can't preserve my own soul. Has anybody in this room had some stupid thing run through your head today? That embarrassed even you. (laughs) And you think, where did that come from? What am I thinking? What goes on inside me? How can I be this corrupt? How can I be? Okay, so the solution to your problem can't be you. Because you're the one who has the problem. So God is the only one who is going to solve those dilemmas for you, who is going to be able to restore your soul, who is going to be able to preserve and protect you. So we take refuge in him 
And we pray that his own integrity, his own uprightness, his own grace, his own loving kindness, that's going to be what preserves us for I wait for thee. Because I hope in you. I anticipate that you're going to deliver me because I got nothing else. And I've said it a couple times tonight, but I'm going to say it once more. When you're cornered that way, where you've got nowhere else to go, nothing else you can hope in, all you've got is God and you are utterly dependent on him, it's a really good place to be. And he knows how to drive you there. He knows how to get you there. And sometimes the way to get you there is through the troubles of this life. Even the troubles of this life that get to you had to first pass through nail-scarred hands and his sovereign will, or it wouldn't have gotten to you. Which means he has a purpose for the difficulties he's taking you through, and his purpose is always, the end result of the correction of God is always a reestablishment of your relationship with him and your understanding of your dependence on him and your understanding that if he had not revealed himself to you, you'd be a goner. I wait for you. And verse 22 ends. Remember, I've been saying through this whole psalm, the enemies of David are the enemies of Israel, and they're trying to take down Israel, and David is praying for deliverance from his enemies. Verse 22, therefore, says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. So sometimes... You can be uh, just a guy. Well, not you two women, but, or April. But sometimes you're just a person. You're just a per- Sometimes you're the king. And I don't care if you're the king. I don't care if you're an apostle. I don't care if you're a bricklayer. I don't care if you're laying in a bed somewhere. I, I don't care who you are, what your circumstances are. Trouble is coming in this life. Difficulty, the agonies of life are coming. You're going to lose people you love. Your body is going to rebel on you. Can I get a witness? Oh, but Trouble is coming in this life. The way to get through the troubles and the difficulties of this life is to remember that God is still on his throne doing whatever seems right to him. And if you are delivered, he's the one that delivers you. And if you are not delivered from these problems and those problems kill you, you go home. You win either way. So, take sides against yourself, choose the side of God, walk in the paths of God, and recognize that no matter who you are or what you're going through, God is still God, and you're still not. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.